Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a few months ago, we had screenwriter and renaissance man Brian Koppelman on the show to discuss creativity, working routines, facing rejection, and what Brian had to say resonated with a lot of you. A lot of you, we got rave reviews about that podcast. Anyways, Brian mentioned he has he has a writing partner that he's worked with for pretty much his entire career that they've worked together on Rounders, The Illusionist, Ocean's 13. That writing partner's named David Levine, and Brian made the introduction, and I had to get David on the show because besides being a screenplay writer, besides being a movie producer and director, David is also a published novelist, and he's focused a lot of his work on the detective genre, which I'm a big fan of, Raymond Chandler and all those classic hard-boiled detective novels. Anyways, David and I discuss creativity, his working routine, how you establish a working relationship with a writing partner or a business partner of any type. We also discuss detective novels and what men can learn from detectives in the detective novel genre and why the detective is such has become such a an archetype of American masculinity. Besides that, we talk about boxing and MMA. David is a boxer, has dabbled in, in mixed martial arts as well for most of his life. And in fact, his grandfather was a professional boxer who fought Joe Lewis for the world championship. We discuss what lessons David has learned from boxing and also from his grandfather's experience as a professional boxer in boxing, Joe Lewis. Anyway, fascinating podcast with lots of great insights and things you can do to start applying in your life today to improve yourself. I think you're really going to like this, so let's do this. David Levine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brett. Happy to be on. All right, so you are a writer. Uh, not only of fiction, but also of screenplays. And you, you're actually the writing partner of Brian Koppelman, who we've had on the podcast before. And you guys worked on, what is it, Rounders and Ocean's 13 and Walking yeah. Tall or some of those? Yeah. Um, Brian and I have been uh, best friends since we were kids, actually. We, we met when I was 14 and he was 15 or 16 on this summer trip. And we lived near each other in New York growing up. Never went to the same school, but... Um, you know, live near each other and were have been best buddies since then, you know. And a while back, like about 17, 18 years back, um, we'd each taken these circuitous routes through our careers and we ended up at this place where we both wanted to, to write screenplays and make movies. And <clears throat> I had had a lot of experience in the business because after college I moved out to L.A. and started working in, in the movie business. Um, in low-level assistant type of jobs uh, as a reader, and mainly of screenplays and a story editor, 
so I read thousands of screenplays and, you know, out of the thousands, there were probably a dozen good ones, but, um, I felt like I was able to identify him and, and understand the form through osmosis by just being there and, and reading so many of them. Um, and I ended up back in New York and I was bartending. He was working as a record exec and we decided we wanted to, to sort of, uh, join forces and do a script together. And we, we started meeting like in the mornings before he went to his job. And after I get back from, you know, I'd wake up early after bartending and, um, we knew we wanted to tell the story about friendship and about trying to find your destiny and, and all that sort of stuff. And we couldn't exactly figure out what world to set it in. We, we knew that the, one of the characters would probably be um, a law school student, uh, though, though that wasn't the path he wanted to take. And then one night at like three in the morning, I got a call and it was Brian and he'd stumbled into one of these underground poker clubs in New York City and gotten cleaned out, lost every dime he had but he loved it. He thought it was so colorful and, and amazing. And the next night we went back and we started going basically every night playing slash researching. And we did that for about a year and met all the characters on the scene. And, and that's when we knew that we'd do this poker movie and that's what turned into rounders. Turned into rounders. Yeah. And we've been working together ever since we've, we've been writing partners in, in the movie world, we've produced a lot of stuff together and we've, we've directed together as well. So here's a question I have. You guys are best friends since you guys were kids. How do you collaborate on creative work? Because for a lot of people, I think they think something like a screenplay or a, a movie, you know, directing, it's sort of like, it's the, the lone artist, the lone genius working by himself. How do you fuse two minds into this, to a story? Right uh, with the screenplay. I mean, how what's your what's your collaboration process like? Well, you know, I you hear about these these writing teams and even like three person and sometimes even more people on a team, and it is kind of hard to understand how all that can coalesce and turn into like a single vision. But for us, you know, if people would think about the the Hughes brothers or the Cone brothers, it would make more sense in a way as if like, because people are brothers, they have a mind meld going. Or yeah. something. Um, so we sort of say that we're like brothers, but we don't have all the baggage of having grown up in the same house in a way we, you know, growing up since we've known each other, since we were kids, we've read a bunch of the same books, always we're going to the movies together. So, our, you know, our favorite movies are pretty similar. Um, listening to the same music and we have like a shared language in a way. And, there just seemed to be something like when we started writing, writing scripts, there's, it's a collaborative medium, you know, often it starts with one person alone writing this story and then other people get involved and, you know, it starts to become all these, you know, a director, camera people, all these crew members and, and producers and money people and stuff like that. So our thing just starts being collaborative right from the beginning. And, you know, we would be saying the dialogue to each other. So it wouldn't be like the solitary thing where you would picture like an author just in a room alone grinding out this prose. We're writing these scenes that are basically, you know, these a lot of these scenes are, are people talking to each other. So there we are doing it before it's barely written. That's cool. Well, um, besides your um, the screenplay work, you also write fiction, write novels. Uh, and 
detective fiction in particular. You have the uh, the Frank Bear series. And I'm curious because I'm a big fan of like the the hard boiled detective novelists from years gone by, like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler. Um, have those guys had an influence on your work? Definitely. You know, growing up, I I would read those books. Um, I love Hammett. I love Chandler. Jim Thompson was a guy who you know I read everything he wrote Lawrence Block and I've been lucky enough to get to know Lawrence Block over the last little while, which is amazing. Elmore Leonard, I'm a huge fan of, but then other writers too, you know, um, I was a, a big Hemingway reader growing up and I think I read his sort of, uh, fancier novels, but when I became an adult, I went back and started reading those short stories. And a lot of them are kind of hard boiled crime short stories and his writing style is, you know, really lends itself to that. It's so terse and, and economical. And, you know, uh, guys like Kem Nunn. So I've been a huge fan of, of that genre. And I wrote a couple of books sort of at the beginning of my screenwriting career. I published two. They were more what would be considered literary novels, um, less genre. But I had this idea for the first one of these Frank Bear books in, in in the series, you know, what turned out to be a series at the time, it was just this one story I really wanted to tell about, um, about a kid who, who goes missing from sort of a, a place where it's not expected. He's, he's in Indianapolis and the Midwest kind of bucolic setting where people aren't really ready for that kind of thing. And his father sort of can't, can't let the thing go and accept it and tries a few times futilely to get private investigators involved, but they don't do any good. And then he happens onto this guy, Frank Bear, who's my character. And Bear takes on this case and he's got a he's got a dark, sort of tragic episode in his past that in a way dovetails with the missing kid. And it's sort of haunting to him, but he decides he's gonna do it. And he starts getting involved and he starts finding what he thinks are results. And before long the father can't sit idly by and sort of forces his way in to, to work with Bear. And it's sort of a buddy, a buddy book in the hard-boiled genre where these guys build a relationship as they go to try to find out what happened to this kid. <clears throat> and at the time, I was working in the movie business, and I didn't have a lot of free time, but I had this burning desire to, to be a novelist and publish books. And I decided that I was going to start waking up super early before I went to work. And I had moved out to, uh, out of New York to the suburbs by then. So I started taking the train to Manhattan and I stopped driving because that was wasted time where the most I could do was, was listen to something like listen to a book on tape or, or something like that. And I started taking the train and trying to grab that 40 minute block of time in my life. And, little by little, just write one scene a day or, you know, a few paragraphs, whatever I could. And this, this story came to life and it turned out well. And I was able to set the book up at a, a great publishing company, Doubleday. And they made a two book deal with me and, and the series was launched from there. Fantastic. And you have another one coming out, right? I do. I have the fourth one in the series coming out. It's called Signature Kill. And uh, that's coming out on the 24th. I'm excited about it. I've been working on it for a long time. And it is a 
a, a journey into some some dark stuff. Frank Bear, my guy, who's this big brooding guy who works on his own, sometimes a little self-destructive, doesn't build a great career for himself. Uh, sometimes he, he spikes into a good situation where he can make some money and be on the right track, but he's got a couple of self-limiting or antisocial tendencies that, that rear up, and he's basically on his own. He's got some financial pressure. He can't figure out exactly how he's going to find cases, and he sees a billboard with a, a missing young woman on it with a big reward attached, and he knows it's sort of a hopeless case, but he decides to sign on to it. And as he starts working that case of what happened to this girl, he realizes that he's in the middle of a, a bigger case overall where lots of people, young women especially, have started to disappear in in the city of Indianapolis over the last many, many years, but in a way that it's not clear that it's a serial killer uh, to people who wouldn't be looking or who wouldn't want it to be broadcast. The police sort of don't want it to be known as that because they don't want to create a panic. But he starts to figure out that there might be linkage between what he's working on in this bigger case. And he goes from there. That sounds like some Dashiell Hammett. There's a, one of the novels was like that where the detective will get on a case and he finds out it's actually something bigger. The detective, right? The private eye is sort of this, has become this archetype of American manliness, right? Because people think of Humphrey Bogart in the trench coat, the hat, the cigarette in the mouth, stoic. Yep. Uh, I mean, do you consciously think about like masculinity or manliness when you're developing your characters or how they'll respond to a situation? Well, it's definitely a manly area, right? I, I, my, my thing is set in contemporary times, so nobody's walking around in trench coats and hats. <laughs> but there's this incredible there's this incredible legacy. You know, there's something so great about the detective and especially a detective in America, because if you really extrapolate it, then you're talking about somebody who's searching existentially and they're looking for answers to incredibly complex questions at the heart of these cases, things that get to the heart of our existence that can't really be found out they can find out facts and they can put together the way things happened. And that's sort of just a, a nod at what they're really looking for, which is usually um, some better description of, of their identity. There's in the good ones of these stories, the cases that they're on have a reflection to what, what the, the detective doesn't understand about himself. And, there's a parallel, a little bit of a parallel journey going on. As the guy figures out what's going on on the outside, he's he's also discovering something internal about himself. Yeah. You, you have these guys in a violent setting, and there's either gunplay or fist play, and there's a lot of, you know, there's there's criminals who are trying to inflict their will and take what they want in these situations, and these guys don't want it to happen. So it does get very mono a mono. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, is that the detective is like, he works outside the authority, right? Like he's usually not a police officer. He works on his own. Uh, maybe there's some kind of 
rugged individualist thing going on there. There is. Um, my my character was a cop, and that went badly after a certain point due to certain things that happened in his private life. So there are times in my story, the conflict is always fun and drama. So the cops bitching at the private eye, it, you know, it just makes for fun scenes. Yeah. I, I try to texture it a little because there are times when my guy can turn to the police and certain friends that he, he managed to maintain on the force and they'll help him a little. There's other times when they'll try to use him and manipulate him in ways that he doesn't know in order to pursue their agenda through an outside person. And there's times when they're both working for the same ends, but that diverges most of the time. And it becomes a problem because the cops want, they want to be the authority in this area. And certain private investigators, hard-headed ones, don't want to listen. I mean, in real life, you've got guys who really work out of, outside of the system. If, if you think of uh, Pelicano, who's been in jail for a while, you know, he's a classic example of that. He was a totally famous figure in Los Angeles, but he was operating in a way that was more criminal than almost anybody he was investigating. It's hmm, interesting. Um, I'm curious about this. Why there's a, there's a lot of talk about how um, men don't really read fiction, right? Like fiction is sort of like for ladies. Guys like to read biographies and success books or business books. But what benefit do you think men can get from reading fiction, or why do you think they should make that part of their literary diet? That's a great question, you know. And I do think that the publishing industry and the book companies buy into that to a certain degree, you know. The book companies have just had much bigger success by placing these female-themed novels in these book clubs, which are somehow um, largely female. And, you know, the Oprah Book Club was a huge driver of, of sales for books. And, and I understand what it's like. You know, guys have a lot of responsibility, they have jobs, they have families to raise, they have a lot of stuff to do. And I, I suppose that the wrong kind of fiction can seem trifling or a waste of time to them. And they could read a book like Un, Un, uh, Unbreakable or Unbroken, the, the Zamperini. Oh, yeah, Unbroken. Yeah, Unbroken or, or Lone Survivor. And they get all of the charge of fiction out of that, but it's a true story and in a way it's inspiring because there's this great courage, bravery going on. And in a way you can graph that into your own daily thing. So I understand it, but I think that, I think that there's the right kind of stuff for guys to read that they'll get a ton out of depending what their interests are. I mean, there's a lot of great writers working these days. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. 
So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Yeah, I mean, I love 
some of my favorite fiction, male fiction writers, guys, I mean, it's not specifically male fiction writers, but the guys, the authors who a lot of men gravitate to, um, I love, like, they're often very ambiguous, right? Like, you don't know, it never, it never ends with, like, a good ending, right? But it leaves you thinking and pondering, like, what would I do in that situation? You know, like, Cormac McCarthy. I mean, I read, I've read almost all of his books, and, like, they're all, like, really violent, and they're all sort of like you're, there's like really not a really great resolution at the end, but it leaves you thinking the same with like the detective novels. Uh, you know, so there's usually, there's a resolution, of course, they solve the crime, but you never, it's, sometimes it's not a happy ending. And for some, I, I like that for some reason. Yeah. I mean, the thing, Cormac McCarthy is something you think about any guy who would read nonfiction would love to read those, those books, but you're right. You know, sometimes things are ambiguous or sometimes because of the writing style, which in his case is, is very elevated and also very iconoclastic, it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to parse sometimes. You know, these passages in Spanish in some of his books, there's no punctuation, <laughs> there's no quotation marks. And, and, you know, if somebody's on their way to work or something or has a half an hour to read, that can just be a bit of a pain. Um, I, for me, it's worth it. This is this is the uh, area that I live in and toil in. So, so I, it's sort of natural to me. I, I know tons of guys went and saw um, No Country for Old Men when it came out. And I, I bet you tons of people love that movie and probably not that many of them read the book, but it's an incredible read. Too. Yeah. And I think, you know, weirdly, um, premium cable, like the AMC type some stuff. really great shows on right now that have sort of, um, a, a novelistic style to them. You know, they have these 10 or 12 episodes that are sort of chapters and it's not cheesy like some broadcast TV. There's no commercials. You can you can download it on iTunes and take it in a binge or something like that. And in a way, that's supplanted what the detective novels and the noirs used to be for, for guys in the 50s. Yeah, Justified, I guess, is a good example of that or True Detective on HBO. Yeah, great example. You know, love both of those shows and you watch those and you're getting everything that um that a really good Elmore Leonard or Mickey Spillane in the old days or whatever one of those books would you know, what you'd be going for. Yeah. I think I've I've read studies too about fiction um helps you become more empathetic or like builds like theory of mind because like you're you by reading fiction you get into the minds of other characters even though they're fictional or other people and it allows you it sort of builds up like social repertoire in you by reading fiction i've, I've read somewhere about that oh that's fascinating yeah, yeah. that's have... certainly why i would do it because it puts you in a world and it puts you in the head or voice of, of a person that you would never encounter you know really in a way it's putting you in in the head of an author who some of these guys have been great thinkers or had brilliant ideas are a great way to express themselves. So you kind of refer to this um, earlier when you talk about how you started writing on the train. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm curious, like, do you have a ritual to get you ready for work or, but are you one of those guys like, you know, Stephen King, where it's just like, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. If it's on the back of a napkin, if I'm going to create something, I'm going to create something. Things don't have to be perfect. <laughs> well, I certainly wouldn't compare my output to Stephen King's, um, you know, that guy is just a phenom, how he does it. I, I, 
I've read some of his books on writing, and I actually can't remember his exact way that he goes about it, but clearly the guy is just a natural. For me, I try to, I try to make it less about a ritual because if you build a ritual, it can be a great way to insulate yourself from actually doing it. You can start to get elaborate with that stuff. You know, you need your room set up in a special way. Nobody can be around. It has to be the right time of day. You have to have the right materials. You have to be in the right mood. You can just basically, if then any part of that isn't right, you're starting to make an exit for yourself from doing the task at hand. You can tell yourself that the rich, you know, the ritual wasn't lived up to. So how could you be expected to do your work or do your best work? I try to not be too precious about that stuff. And I get up, I take you know, read the paper for a little while, get ready for the day, take my kids to school, which is a good time. I drop them off and then um, head for the train. And it's like a 42 minute ride. And I just, there's something about the fact that it's short, that's very freeing because it doesn't seem too punishing. It's just like, okay, just do whatever happens. How much expectation can you have? Nobody expects you to write 10 pages. You're getting up out of the seat in 40 minutes. So whatever happens, happens. And sometimes I grind out a couple of sentences and end up just staring into space. And other times um, I have to pack up my stuff and, and jump off the train before the doors close and they take it back to the train yard or something because I got on a roll. Um, so that's how my day starts. Now I'm someone who's fortunate to do what they love. So writing is my day job or, you know, creating stuff is my day job. So parts of it are long periods of, of writing these screenplays and teleplays. So I'll end up at my office shortly after getting off the train and then I'll have a day of writing ahead of me. But the day of writing in, at times isn't even as concentrated as the 40 minutes because the phone will start ringing. There'll be stuff to deal with Brian and I, um, you know, we could just be like in a different headspace where one of us wants to talk something through and the other one wants to write something down or one guy wants to write dialogue and the other guy wants to keep going with the outline. So, you know, out of the bigger portion of the day, sometimes you're just looking for a way to capture quality minutes also. Gotcha. That's what it is. I remember when I was younger, um, trying to make everything perfect and clear my day so I could write for hours and, and cover page after page and it was it was almost crippling and then i read something that carver wrote about writing raymond carver great short story writer and he said he had always planned on being a novelist but he had kids when he was young and it was always he had to be a teacher to make money and every night it was like he had to help doing the laundry and cleaning the dishes and making his kids lunches the next day. And he realized he was never going to have more than a 45 minute or hour or two hour patch in his life. And he better write something that he could finish in that amount of time. So he started writing short stories and just gave, you know, forgot about the novels and became one of the best ever. Wow. So yeah, the constraints helped him. Yeah. You know, I guess you got to find a way to, to make these limitations work for you because otherwise they really are going to be limitations. Yeah. So th this is something interesting about you. Uh, Brian told me you have a background in boxing and martial arts, correct? Yeah. I've, I've been doing that stuff for years. Um, you know, not as a serious, I, I'm not out there like as a club fighter, or even amateur fighter. I got to, I, I have to um, protect the mainframe. You know, I'll spar, I'll wear headgear. <laughs> It won't be too crazy. Generally, I'll be sparring with trainers now instead of 
guys at the gym, but I, I've been boxing for a while. I've done martial arts. I do um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm into it. It's, it's, um, I love, I love MMA and I'm getting kind of uh, on the older side for that. I'm 47, but it keeps you in great shape and it just, it makes you feel like alive, you know, whenever I go to do some other sport like tennis or golf or something, I just, it's like sleepwalking. And when, when you're in there rolling with somebody or sparring, you just really feel alive. Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of interesting that there's like a lot of those like manly writers, right? That we think of those iconic ones like Hemingway, uh, Jack London, both were avid boxers. And I, I've read there was a this guy, he's a philosopher, philosophy professor, I forgot where, but he wrote an essay. He's a boxer too. Um, how philosopher boxing has helped him in philosophy. And I'm curious, has has taking part in martial arts boxing, has it helped you in any ways with your like creative and intellectual battles in your work? Um, it's helped me in numerous ways, I'd say. I mean, for one, any, any experiential information that I gain by practicing this stuff has been put on its feet in my books because Frank Bear lives in a world where he's not doing this stuff as a sport. You know, he's constantly like, he's living this rough and tumble life as this private investigator so I can use the details that I've learned for him. You know, he's a guy who is an experienced street fighter and he's a big, tough guy and he knows firearms. He's, he, he knows hand to hand and all that stuff. So there's always scenes in, in the books that cover it, that, that I get to inform with a lot of real life detail. So that's great. But I think what you're asking is, what does it do on a psychological level? Yeah. And, you know, pursuing filmmaking or writing novels is definitely a discipline because you can only go little by little and it's daunting and it takes a long time and there's a lot of room for self-doubt and there's a lot of ways that you can get distracted and get off course, even if you have deadlines there's always a way you can make up an excuse if you're not careful. So training in these arts is super, you have to be super dedicated. And that's one of the reasons why I keep the sparring or the, the rolling in jujitsu in there because that'll force me to keep up the strength training and force me to keep up the cardio because the downside of not doing those things is so vivid when you go into the third round against some guy who's 25 years old and works in the gym as a boxing trainer and does it all day long. And now, you know, whatever, whatever semblance of skill you had starts to fade because you're crapping out and you have no more gas because you haven't been doing your running and lifting and everything. It's a disaster. I mean, you're, you're totally hosed at that point. You're just going to immediately get physical pain as your reward. So it forces you to keep up the discipline. And then that does transfer over um, because sitting there and, and writing a hard scene or doing something, you know, rewriting a, a book or something, it's just not going to seem as difficult if you've put yourself through the road work and all that stuff. It's a mindset. Gotcha. Um, it, it, boxing runs in your family. Uh, your dad or your grandfather, excuse me, 
uh, was a boxer. And he actually fought Joe Lewis for the heavyweight championship of the world. Tell me about your grandfather and how did that fight go down? Yeah, my grandfather was, um, his name is John Paycheck. <clears throat> and the, the country singer guy, you know, that take this job and shove it guy, Johnny Paycheck, took his name from my grandfather. Oh, wow. actually, took the stage name. But, um, yeah, he was a, he lived on the south side of Chicago. He was super poor growing up. He got into boxing. He was really good. He was the top prospect in the U.S. He fought Golden Gloves for the U.S. He won the Golden Gloves against Ireland and knocked this guy out, broke his jaw. He, so he was a top prospect when he was like 19 or 20 years old. And he was a heavyweight, but it's ironic because I don't I didn't think he touched 190. I think he was like 188, something like that. You know, very small sort of heavyweight. And Joe Lewis wasn't super big either, but he was definitely bigger than my, my grandfather. So my grandfather was having a really great string of fights through the Midwest. And it was around the time when, when Joe Lewis got drafted into the Army and they knew he was going to go in like six months or a year or something like that. So they organized the Bum of the Month Club, you know, what's pejoratively called that now, um, where they wanted to book him like a fight a month so, so he could make a bunch of money before he went into the Army and couldn't fight for a while. Um, so they started to reach out to these likely prospects and – you know, I've seen I've seen footage of the fight, and it's it's so hard to watch because there's my grandfather, and he he gets knocked down three times in the first round. He survives the first round. In the second round, he he gets taken out with a I think it's like a left hook, brutal left hook. And I and I remember talking to him about it when I was young, when he was still alive. He he said. You know, when I went in that night, I was dry. I couldn't get a sweat going because I was nervous. And he said, when he hit me with his jab, I felt that it hurt me. And he said that he'd never been, you know, he wouldn't get hurt by a jab. You get you get thrown off a little by a jab, but Lewis's jab actually hurt him. And before long, it was over. And, you know, I used to always think about it. I used to, the thing that I learned about, about him as a fighter was that he was extremely tough. He, he didn't become a legend, but he sort of, he got a shot at a legend. He got pretty close. And the realities of like the fear and the pain, hearing it from, from a guy who'd been in there was totally eye opening because as a fight fan, you never actually hear about that. Nobody ever admits that in a post fight interview. You know, they just say like it wasn't their night or whatever. So there was that side that I learned back in the day but it's funny, as I got older, one of the first things I wrote, I think the first thing I published was in Ring Magazine, actually. It was a story about my grandfather, and it touched on that fight and stuff like that. Um, but as I got older, I learned something else. This guy reached out to me, an old man who was friends with my grandfather, reached out to me um, after the article came out, and he told me how the fight came together. And, and that was a real education in the way the world worked, which was – he wasn't just some rube who thought that he was going to beat Joe Lewis. In fact, when when the fight offer came in, they said, you know, we want you to fight, I can't remember the date exactly, 1941 at the Garden in June or something like that, Madison Square Garden. And he and his camp said, the kid's not ready. He needs another year. So we're going to turn down the fight. And the promoters strong-armed him and said, he'll either he'll either be there that night at the Garden or he'll never fight in the Garden for the rest of his career. And it was like, 
an amazing firsthand lesson in just how crooked the game has been and how it's always been that way. So I felt, you know, I didn't just feel like he was an athlete who lost. I felt for him as a young man who got, who got bowled into something that was bigger than him, that there was no way he could have actually pulled off. Yeah. And you just have to take it, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's like, I I I feel like we've all been in one of those situations where you're sort of forced into something and you just have to make the best of it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just find yourself uh, taking it and, and you just hope you can take it like a man. Yeah. Well, David, where can, uh, this has been a great conversation. Where can people find out more about your work? And when does the next book come out? Well, the, so the, the next book comes out on uh, Tuesday, March 24th, and it's called Signature Kill. And my website is davidlevine.com, and my last name's L-E-V-I-E-N. So a little unusual spelling, davidlevine.com, L-E-V-I-E-N.com. And, and all the info's on there. Fantastic. Well, David Levine, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Our guest today was David Levine. He is a screenwriter, movie producer, and director, and a novelist. And his latest novel in the Frank Bear series dropped last month. It's called Signature Kill. If you're a big fan of detective novels, and if you're not, go pick it up. You're, I think you'd, you'll, you'll find a new genre of literature you're going to like. I'm a big fan of it. You can find that on Amazon.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you'd like to support our podcast and support the website, one thing you do is go to store.artofmanliness.com and pick up some of our Art of Manliness gear that we have there. We've got a fantastic, really manly coffee mug we've gotten rave reviews about. We put a whole bunch of t-shirts on clearance uh, for the spring, so go check out the clearance section. Anyways, some great stuff there. Go check it out. Again, store.artofmanliness.com. Your purchases will help support the continuation of the site and the podcast. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.